there's there's two ways you can take being a Chicana writer. Write about decolonization, and I could write about these tough topics, or I could write about tortillas, and I could write about piñatas, and I could write a cute little story about abuelita. But in terms of what I think the genre needs, in terms of literature, the literary aspect, the canon, the, the Chicano literary canon, we need more rebellious books. Hello, everybody. My name is Keith Saunders, and I am this week's host of The Follow, a multicultural podcast from creative agency Sanders Wingo, where we talk to up-and-coming BIPOC creators, movement makers, and thought leaders who we follow. These are influencers who you might not know about, but we think you should. We talk to them about their work, worldview, and how they use their platform. But we also cover race, identity, and all things culture in a format designed to help us all get smarter about culture. If you like the show, please do us a huge favor and rate and review it on your favorite podcast platform. It boosts the show's visibility so other people can find and enjoy it as well. Today, I'm speaking to Gris Munoz, a poet and storyteller known for her bilingual poetry and short story collection, Coat Liquid Girl which was most recently named a finalist for the John A. Robertson Award for Best First Book of Poetry by the Texas Institute of Letters. In the episode, you'll hear all about the book and how it took her over 13 years to write. You'll also hear how living near the Texas-Mexico border has shaped her work. And we'll touch on some of the other innovative projects that she's currently working on. So sit back, listen, and enjoy. Thank you, Grease, for uh, joining us today on The Follow. We very much appreciate having you here. If you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from, and what you do. Sure. Thank you so much for having me here. My name is Grease Munoz. I am a poet, uh, author, and biographer, amongst other things, born and raised in El Paso, right here on the border. I've been working steadily on, you know, my trajectory, my career for about 16, 17 years now, and finally have reached a nice level of clarity when it comes to what I'm doing. Since you're on the border, on the frontera, how has that shaped you and your work being on on the border, you think? El Paso, you know, in some ways, such an innocent city. I call it the Raza Incubator. Because like, let's say when I travel to LA and stuff, like LA is, I'm going to say maybe about 10, 15 years ahead of El Paso in a lot of ways, like, you know, related to the arts or related to just different. And El Paso, the people are working class Mm -hmm. and they're exploited. I mean, there's an exploitation here that is constantly happening on the border and the people are, you know, they're largely used as a workforce, right? Okay. Uh, that's just, okay. Yeah, that's, that's what I mean. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and so growing up, you know, seeing that, seeing my mom working at a factory and she started working at a factory when I was in the fourth grade and seeing how she used to come home and, and her hands would be just cut up from cardboard boxes because she she would do that at work you develop like ultimately you develop an anger a societal anger to say how come we have to work so hard just to survive and so all of that those were all the factors the border life uh factors that were kind of like creating me 
and I'm uh, creating this rebellious nature that I ended up really like exhibiting and having to have so that I could be a writer and so that I could have this write this book and and continue on with my career. So the border is, you know, I call it the open wound. Mm. There's so much yeah, yeah, you know, there's just so much happening. You know, you can imagine there there's an organization here that they have an event that is yearly. They're called Border Network for Human Rights. And they have an event where they have permission from the border patrol and and the police and they they you know this is a, a something that's planned every year and they open the border wall for 3 minutes and families that have been separated get to hug so it's called uh, hugs not walls so hmm. they'll open the border wall and you mm-hmm. have families that have been separated by that border they haven't seen each other in 10 20 years and you can imagine what that's like i mean they're just one city one city is right next to the other mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. Yeah. and so these families will will come and they'll wait and then there's the whole event and a lot of times they'll have like the bishop there and they'll have like you know it's like a beautiful social justice event and mm-hmm. they'll open up that border wall and those families will get to embrace and you can imagine three minutes is nothing. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it's, it's once per year. It's once mm-hmm. per year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and so well, that's what I say when I mean there's a lot of, there's a lot of, of, you know, the open wound. There's a lot of pain that's caused by a border. It's especially felt by the families here. So many people in El Paso have a family member or have family in Juarez and not everybody has access to be able to cross. Like, you know, I have a passport. I was born mm-hmm. here. I have that mm-hmm. privilege. And so th- there mm-hmm. is a lot of that, like, you know, and the border is also incredible. It's beautiful. It's like, it has its own language. It has its own dynamic, right? And even people that are, let's say, artists or any kind of, you know, writer or you know, there's even kind of like a separate term for being from the border, and they call that being a fronterizo. And fronterismo, right, is very much like this eclectic mix. It's a mixture of Spanish and English. The way that we speak is not exactly like pure Spanish, mm. right? My colleague and friend, she says that I speak the... She's, she's being nice because my Spanish isn't also great, but she'll say, no, 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 don't feel bad. You speak the language of the frontera. So in terms of race, ethnicity, identity, culturally, how do you identify yourself? I am a descendant. I descend from indigenous roots, I guess. My great-grandmother was a full-blood Apache, born in Bisbee, Arizona, and and my grandmother was born in Superior, Arizona. So I, I do have another side of me that is like the North Native American and uh, I identify as Chicana. There's a famous saying, and he, he's a famous El Pasoan, very, very, very famous painter. His name is Gaspar Enriquez. And Gaspar says, you're born a Mexican-American, but you choose to be a Chicano. And so Chicano is kind of like this term for a Mexican-American identifying person who is more politically conscious, I guess. And more towards like how 
racism, like systemic racism and, you know, different issues that they affect people on the border, or like, let's say other Chicanos, other Mexican Americans. And so it's kind of like, it's kind of like a political stance when you say you're Chicano. And it's also a decolonial stance, right? To, to decolonize is to change your viewpoint in so many ways, right? Because we're taught, you know, a very, Amer- let's say, American way of looking at the world. And to be Chicano is to kind of start pushing away from a lot of ideas that, you know, you, you could be raised with. Chicanos especially love uh, decolonizing, like, spirituality, right? Because a lot of Mexican-Americans are raised within, like, very, very strict Catholic churches, right? And, like, stuff like that. So Chicanismo, in a lot of ways, kind of addresses a more indigenous way of looking at the world, opposed that is opposed to, like, Judeo-Christian ways of being raised. So it's kind of like you change the channel from assimilated to Chicano, and then you're still yourself, except that, you know, you question a little bit more. And you want to know why the trains are going through only people of color neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. when there's no trains that go through the white neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And why, why is it that the school over here, the kids of color, the school is right next to a, a recycling plant that is literally blowing out tons of freaking feedums. And, mm-hmm. and you think that that would fly uh, on the other side of town, right? Or even the way that the city in itself was, was created, was built, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. A lot of times uh, the, the best land and the best resources, right, went to the white community and the people of color got, you know, the, the other. The other. Mm-hmm. And even, even now with gentrification, we're even losing that. Mm-hmm. We're, we're even losing historically... Latino neighborhoods to gentrification, right? And so these are the issues that when you're Chicano, this is the difference. Is that like mm. I'm actually going to question why, right? And so we address systemic racism, and you know I address systemic racism in the book, and so that's all part of it. Like you know, in the book I'm talking about education, mm-hmm. right? The educational system, and how you have a bunch of kids who are indigenous or the descendants of indigenous people but they've lost their history mm-hmm. they don't have they don't have that connection to their indigenous selves right they don't know what tribe they're from and, and mm. they don't they don't have those connections that doesn't mean that the blood isn't there right and so chicanos and a lot of scholars like to talk about the concept of ancestral memories mm-hmm. ancestral memories are just memories that are passed down to us and a lot of times ancestral memories is also traumas, ancestral traumas. So there's literally studies that have been done on like the descendants of Holocaust victims. The descendants of Holocaust victims, their descendants and their, their lineage, they have higher levels of depression. Mm. They could have higher levels of, of, of some type of mental illness or some issues. And that is higher than others, right? And that is associated with ancestral memory. Or like the mm. black community, the absolute mm. horror of being forced into labor for centuries. Mm-hmm. What that does now to these communities, the ancestral memory of that, and how mm-hmm. that trauma plays out 
within the families, within the communities of people of color. And so all, all of that, uh, all of that is addressed when you take on a more decolonial way of looking at the world. And also in my book, when I talk about education and I talk about our history is taken away from us, you know, where, where's our creation stories? Where's my family lineage, right? What, what happened there? There's that break. And that break, it comes through the trauma of just being forced to work, of just pure labor. These families, they're working class families. Uh, like I said, my dad was a farm worker. He was on the fields, you know, picking vegetables at, at five years old. And they, they, they were homeless, essentially. They lived uh, on a mill. They worked at this mill, and the whole family worked at this mill, and they lived at this mill. And it was complete exploitation. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so a lot of that goes into the book, and a lot of what goes into my own writing is talking about that, right? Mm, I, don't know, right. I don't know if you guys, I don't know if you all are, were expecting me to, to be addressing uh, such, you know, powerful topics and such, you know, but this is, this is definitely, you know, relevant. Absolutely. No, uh, we'd love to have a person like yourself on, on here because we want to hear your perspectives. Let's go to your book, your yeah. fascinating bilingual book of poetry and short stories, Coatlique Girl. Yes. And uh, so just to start there with the name, what made you name your book that? Oh, that's a good question. So Guadalupe Girl, is, it's named after one of the poems uh, in the book. And I wrote this poem probably again, like, you know, I was in my, in my 20s, maybe, maybe 29. And the book and the, the poem, and I'm looking for it now, but the poem very much kind of like, I guess it, you can say that it, it almost like summarizes what the book is about, the poem. And so this is, this is the poem, Guadalupe yeah. Girl. I pressed my copper mouth against the thin of her eyelid, delicada, blink, green veined, like folding cricket wings. In the echoing valley, you lay beside me, breasts, stones. I had forgotten Guatlique girl. There lives the hum of mantis, the macaw in you. Five hundred years later, I remember. And so, you remember how I had been mentioning about the idea of ancestral memory? Memories. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. So, so, so that's so that's what it's saying. It's it's kind of saying, and Guadalique is the Aztec goddess, oh, who was like the mother of all the goddesses. Like she is considered the mother of like everything and all of us and so like she's also considered the earth because the earth is our mother it's very decolonial to think of a woman as a goddess right because we realize that that was a thinking that is ind indigenous thinking that is more matrilineal based right and judeo-christian when when everything was colonized they took away the idea of women having spiritual power and women goddesses right everything was replaced with the male god and jesus so that is the idea of you know 
there's also that that's what I'm telling you about decolonization, right? So when we mm -hmm. start saying, well, well, I'm connected to the earth and, and I identify with this with this mother image, I identify with creation being the earth, and, and I identify with what is sacred being a woman. Mm -hmm. And so I say, I press my copper mouth against the thin of her eyelid, and there's also like a sensual quality to the poem, right? Mm -hmm. Who's this woman? Who am I talking about, right? Who is Guadalupe Girl? But there's also this idea of like queerness, because like I said, during this whole process, I also discovered that I was bisexual. And the book is about being bisexual too. So this woman that I'm saying that I'm with or that I'm, excuse me, talking about, in like a deep way, I guess, I'm saying that my queerness was also ancestral. My queerness is also decolonial because it was taken away from us. What is considered good and like according to Christian values is not for a long time was not being queer, was not being gay, was not being bisexual, right? And so this whole idea of like, you know, in order to fit under the guise of, of Christianity, in order for the Christian God to accept me, I would have to be totally different, like, because I'm queer. So this is, this is what, what Liquid Girl, the poem is about. It's about how she's saying that really being queer is also like ancestral memory for me. That was mm. something that was taken away. And that's why I say 500 years later, I remember, because it's been almost 500 years since the Spanish Inquisition. When the Spaniards came and, you know, they ripped apart all of Mexico and South America, you know, everywhere, everywhere that the, that the British didn't get, the Spaniards got. And these were all people of color everywhere. And then we were turned into Christians violently. Right. And so Guadalupe Girl, the poem is saying 500 years later, I'm remembering I'm queer and I'm connecting to the feminine sacred, not the male sacred. And you would think that that wouldn't be super rebellious and super like, you know, but it is even in 2021, it's considered heretical almost what this book talks about and, and what this book proposes. And like I said, I've been a rebel all my life, so I might as well be the one to do it. What did you, when you first set out to write the book, what did you want to accomplish and did it evolve over the years that you were writing it? So I've always been very ambitious. Mm -hmm. And so one thing that when I started writing, especially when you're younger and, and you come across writing circles for the first time, like maybe I'm going to my first open mic or I'm, go, I'm trying to meet, you know, a writing community, people will go up to you and they'll say, have you read, you know, Bukowski or have you read whatever? And you go, oh, I, I haven't. And you just kind of feel like a little embarrassed. But at the time that happened to me, I started feeling like I really needed to know more about literature. And so there was a time when I really like immersed myself in literature I went back to school. I was going to EPCC at first, a community college here, which is a wonderful school. And then I switched over to the university and I studied uh, literature and creative writing and really fell in love with like all the writing of the world. Mm -hmm. And there's a famous writer by the name of Ezra Pound. 
Mm-hmm. Ezra Pound, Ezra Pound is is really like you know now now it's known you know not really the best guy, but he did say make it new, mm. and that always like that. stayed with me. And then I thought to myself, if I ever write this book, when I write this book, it's going to be something that had never been seen. Why am I going to spend thirteen years working on a book? That's already been written by someone else. The theory, mm-hmm. or right? Mm-hmm. I definitely did not want to do that. I I almost became obsessed that I wanted it to be innovative. I wanted it to be something that the genre had not seen because I I felt like you know there's there's two ways you can take being a Chicano writer, right? I could write about decolonization. And I could write about these tough topics, or I could write about tortillas, and I could write about piñatas, and I could write a cute little story about abuelita, and everyone will say, "Oh, I love that. That's so good." And there's nothing wrong with being the writer that writes about tortillas and abuelitas. And it's not to say that I don't write about tortillas or abuelitas, or or in fact adore tortillas and abuelitas, but. In terms of what I think the genre needs, in terms of literature, the literary aspect, the canon, the Chicano literary canon, you know, we need more rebellious books and maybe not so many books about the tortillas, right? Because we've had lots of them. And so ultimately, mm-hmm. what I want to do and, and what I always imagine in my career is that I want to write innovative books, like the biography that I'm writing now. Uh, it's in a totally different form. There's never been a biography written like this because mm-hmm. it's a story that pertains to addiction. The the mm-hmm. person that I'm writing about, he has a story of addiction and, and he's eventually triumph. He is one of the, the most popular uh, Chicano artists in Los Angeles. He is extremely mm-hmm. well known. I saw a picture of him with Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda. But at the beginning, he was an addict, right? Mm, and mm-hmm. and so he has an incredible story. But I realized at some point as I was interviewing him that it's very difficult to write the biography of someone who is an addict because essentially there's almost years where they don't remember everything. Mm, maybe they weren't wow. really there, mm-hmm. right? And so I realized that on, on some level, the only way to really tell this story would be to also interview the people that were around him and his family. Mm-hmm. Do you realize that, like, that a family it goes through addiction together? Addiction isn't really just felt by the person going through the addiction. The whole family around them feels that addiction, right? And so I decided mm-hmm. that I was going to write a biography that tells his story, but it also tells, it has chapters. It has a chapter for his mother. It has a chapter for his brother. It has a chapter for mm-hmm. his sister where they get to tell their memory and their memory of that time. And so this is a biography in, in terms of being a biography. No one's ever written a biography that in that form. Mm, right, right. That's what I like. That's what I want to do. I, I want to mm-hmm. keep continuing to like push things. And I, I definitely don't want to just stay where it's comfortable. I don't. So let's just change gears a little bit to some of the, projects that you're working on now 
So right now, what's really, you know, big right now is the idea of digital storytelling. And so I'm involved in this storytelling project called Hail Testimonios Transfronterizos. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it's basically sponsored by the Rubin Center at UTEP right now. Okay. And this project was essentially created that needed to be the, the components of this project is one artist in Juarez and one artist in El Paso and some sort of collaboration between the two. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. what I ended up doing was collaborating with a PhD uh, professor uh, in Juarez from Juarez. Her name is Silvia Fernandez. And mm-hmm. we decided to create a digital storytelling project. Her other title is, is called Digital Humanist. And mm-hmm. she's really cool. She, she actually um, creates maps of different types of information, maybe even types of information that have never really been on a map before. Because if you think about every time you've seen a map, they're all pretty much the same thing. But what if you could make a map of stories? Mm-hmm. Right. Right. Or, or what if you could map some other types of information that aren't usually put on a map? Right. And mm-hmm. so like these these academics uh, are just like really, like I said, making it new. Right. This whole idea really came from a collaboration between the two of us. And it's a digital storytelling project where we're essentially collecting the stories of women on the border on both sides. And then mm-hmm. those stories, and they, the stories could be, you know, like a recording of a story, or it could be written down, or it could just be a photograph of, and each, each story is, is going to be um, mapped on a, on a map, on a digital map. So in other words, like in my, in my book, I have a story called Costco. That's a short story about going to Costco with my mom, Right. Well, the Costco here in our project, the story is literally going to be, you're going to be able to click on the Costco in the map, the city map, and mm-hmm. it will pop up the story, mm-hmm. right? Or somebody could say, this was my grandma's house and, you know, put the address and you click on those little points on the map and it's going to be a place. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's all about, like, everything is so interactive now, right? Mm-hmm. It's really, really cool. And so essentially we're collecting the stories of women on the border because typically these, and like I said, people are busy. They're busy surviving. This is a working mm-hmm. class city. So there's so many stories that are, are being lost because we don't have the luxury of writing them down or, right, these people, these are working class families and they don't really know about collecting your stories. And so this is this is like, Again, you know, this is just a, a, it's a groundbreaking project because there haven't been a lot of projects that have to do with collecting the stories of women on the border. Mm. And what's really cool is it's going to be put on an interactive map. So it's going to mm. look like, a, it's going to look like a regular map, like a Google map, you know, but it's going to have different little flags. You click mm-hmm. on the little point and then you'll be able to see a memory, somebody's mm. picture, you know. And so that also is in terms to, kind of like record the stories and also, you know, in Juarez, there's an issue with the femicides, right? There, And I'm sure you've heard about, there's just so many women that are being killed um, constantly. And so it's also a project that's going to pinpoint the femicides. 
And again, it's, it's we're creating a map that has never been created before, right? Nobody has ever wanted to map these things. Mm. Uh, and so it's very, it's it's a very cool project. And, you know, it's just kind of like an extension of, of what we're already doing or what I'm already doing. Mm-hmm. All right. So I know that you've been commissioned, as you spoke about before, you, you've been commissioned to write a biography about this artist. So can you just tell us a little bit more about who the artist is and how does it compare to writing your own stories now that you're writing one about somebody else? Well, uh, the artist, his name is Fabian Debora. And like mm-hmm. I said, he is extremely prolific. Fabian comes out of the homeboy industries. Um, if you've ever heard of homeboy industries, uh, mm-hmm. it's a organization uh, founded by father Greg Boyle, who mm-hmm. uh Father Greg Boyle is a very, you know, has has books that, you know, I've seen him come out with uh, Deepak Chopra <laughs> in different projects. He's a very, very well-known theologian. And mm-hmm. Father, Father Greg Boyle at some point was assigned, he was a priest, he was a young priest at the time. He was mm-hmm. assigned to a parish in the hardest part of East Los Angeles in the projects mm-hmm. in this gang community. And mm-hmm. Father Greg Boyle helped redesign that community. And he helped so many young men out of addiction. So Fabian, when maybe he was about 13, he started getting into drugs up until early 20s. And Father Greg Boyle was there. And mm-hmm. he would tell him, first you have to get yourself clean and then I'll help you. Mm-hmm. And Fabian did. And then he had kind of like, I guess, I guess me and Fabian kind of see each other similarly because we kind of had like an awakening. Mm -hmm. I had an awakening in my early twenties that kind of like said, Hey, you're a writer. Hey, you know, you need to look further into this to yourself. Right. And I started Mm -hmm. going into other things. Fabian did the same thing. Fabian had a vision. So it was like a religious vision and he was saved and he changed his life Mm -hmm. and now he is a famous muralist painter the man has won countless awards he is an activist and he is living his best life remember i mentioned that homeboy industries uh had like a cafe and they have like different things they have like an automotive well they recently opened up like an art shop and he's mm. and Fabian is the head of that. Mm. Okay. So he is okay. now he does outreach, uh, mm-hmm. and he receives guys that are coming out of gang life, that are coming out of addiction, that are coming out of jail, right? And they rehabilitate these people through the arts. And so he's mm-hmm. he's amazing, like he is incredible. And mm. and the reason that they came to me was because he was actually born in El Paso. Mm, and that mm-hmm. people don't know that but they moved mm-hmm. to LA when they were about when he was about five mm-hmm. and so when they were looking for the right uh, author for this book they said they wanted someone from El Paso you know it just kind of was kismet that the project landed in my hands and we've been working on it now it's been a long time it's been almost four years mm. and it's ready we're finally ready and very excited because this book you know, it's going to come out and it's going to heal a lot of people. 
to be honest, I have grown a lot. I have matured so much as a woman and as an artist, as a writer, working mm-hmm. on other people's stories. I mean, as it is, it's already kind of seen as navel-gazing when you have like a brown woman uh, writing about themselves a lot, you know. But there was an aspect that was really powerful for me to take the focus off of myself mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. put my skills towards telling someone else's story and, mm-hmm. and take, taking that focus off of me. And, and it's actually been incredible. I have matured so much. And then later on with this Hell Testimonios project, again, taking the focus off of myself as an artist mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. putting the focus on the stories of others, that to me kind of just felt like a very natural jump from like going internal. And now that I have developed more skills, right, that I'm able to like share with others what, what I know. And so it's, it's, it's an incredible book. Um, it's, it's basically like a novel, right? It's a novel biography. Mm. It's okay. told in first person. So when you read it, it's like mm. Fabian is talking. Mm. Right? Okay. And then peppered in, peppered in the book is a chapter that's like his mom is talking, his brother is talking, right? Mm-hmm. And, and like I said, I had to do that because he was, he was an addict and there was a lot of things that he really just doesn't remember. Doesn't and remember. So, yeah, yeah. so mm-hmm. I know I spent time, I'd go to LA and just sit down with him and you know you're just listening to someone tell you their life story and then you go home and you're just trying Mm. to like pick out like the images that kind of stand out to you so you can Mm -hmm. kind of start like creating what is like a timeline of someone's stories Mm -hmm. and so I was given full creative control with this book which Mm -hmm. has been amazing and super terrifying and at one point I thought you know, I'm never going to get this done. And I, you know, finally getting to the point where I'm, I'm, I'm capable. And I'm Mm -hmm. super excited about it, because essentially, this is going to be my first, like, major work. And quite liquid girl is, you know, it's 100 pages long. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's, uh, I mean, it's actually considered pretty long for a poetry book, a poetry book, uh, like a formal poetry book, it should be at least about 56 pages, I think. And mm-hmm, up. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is going to be like a totally it's a much bigger project for me it's going to be a full-size book uh, maybe mm-hmm. about hopefully about 250 to 300 pages mm-hmm. and you know um, and it's not about me at all which is awesome <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome good yeah no I, I look forward to uh reading that and you think it maybe in the next year or so or might come yeah. out or we're hoping to have the final, final, final draft, maybe by the end of the year. And then mm-hmm. maybe we can have it out maybe by next summer, by the summertime. Okay. And then what I love yeah. is there's going to be a big party. I love, I love book parties. That's the best part is a celebration and, and how excited, you know, Fabian's community is going to be. And he wants to shut down the street to his studio and have this huge block party. And so I'm super excited about it. Yeah. One question I want to ask as it relates to, because we are a creative advertising agency, we always want to know and ask this is like, are there any organizations or brands that you would love to partner with to support the causes that you care about? Personally, I I would like to work on more storytelling projects. 
I think it would be incredible to have the partnership of maybe like, like even a local PBS, because as you know, you know, like uh, an issue when, when you're an independent artist and, you know, is, is finding an audience is like expanding the audience, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so ultimately, like I, I personally would, would love to partner up with maybe Texas public radio or imagine, you know, all things considered or mm -hmm. NPR or stuff like that. Like, I think that would be amazing to be able to tell these stories. So uh, we, we follow you and we're, we're very appreciative of you bringing yourself and putting it on the page. So who are you following right now? Well, I personally like to follow the content creators like writers, right? She's one of my best friends, but she's also a you know, hugely famous uh, writer. Her name is Therese Mayotte. She's indigenous from Canada. She wrote a book called Heartberries. My mentor, and I call him El Jefe, Luis Alberto Rea, he is a, an incredibly prolific. I mean, this man has won every lifetime award there is to win and absolutely follow Luis on his work. You need to look up Stephen Dunn. Uh, originates from West Virginia. He is a black writer. He now lives okay. in uh, Denver. Uh, he wrote a book, a novel called Potted Meat. I absolutely okay. recommend it. It is one of the most innovative novels that I have come across. I recommend following uh, Therese Mayat, uh, Luis Alberto Rea, definitely Los Dos. Locally, the artists, you know, there's so many incredible artists here. And my good friend, you might want to uh, catch up with my good friend, uh, Erica Marin. She is okay. the first woman and the first Latina to ever be named the head of the El Paso Museum of History. Mm, okay. she's, she's the director of the El Paso Museum of History, and uh, she's the first woman to have that post and the first Latina to have that post. Finally, where can we follow you on social media? Where can other people follow you? Most of the time, I'm super accessible on Instagram. And my handle there is at Gris Muñoz Gris. Instagram mm -hmm. is really, I think, where, where I'm really me. Thank you, Gris, for being here and taking the time to share a little bit of your world with us. And thank you all for listening. Again, my name is Keith Saunders, and you've been listening to The Fala, a multicultural podcast from creative agency Sanders Wingo. For show notes, past episodes, or to get notified when a new episode comes out, visit thefollowpodcast.com. And if you like the show, please rate and review it on your favorite podcast platform. It boosts the show's visibility so other people can find and enjoy it as well. Until next time, take care.